<laughs> Yay. So it's great to see you guys. Um, I want to pray in just a second, uh, mostly because this passage that we're going to be studying in Job 42 is, uh, well, I need, I need the Lord's help like I do every week, but this is a, it's a big subject. Um, before we do that, though, uh, I just want to say hello to all you folks out in Aurora, uh, North Shore, uh, Chicago Cathedral. I almost said Crystal Cathedral, but they're, <laughs> they're not our church yet. Just kidding. <laughs> you guys out in Elgin and Crystal Lake, uh, many of you don't know that on the weeks that I don't preach, I go and, and hang out at another campus. So I was at Crystal Lake last week, which was really fun. Sat in the back row with all the sinners, and, and we uh, really enjoyed the service. <laughs> now, it was fantastic. Got to meet some really great people there. Also, uh, my daughter goes to HCA, which is really cool. And uh, this last week, I realized that my office in Elgin is very near AC. I just have to walk through the door, and then they have, they have turkey sandwiches down there. So I'm like, oh, I'm doing that. <laughs> so I went down there, and I've been sitting with uh, just a gaggle of grade, sixth grade girls the last week. And so I want to say a shout out to those sixth grade girls. God bless them. They're all fantastic if I gave you all their names. I've been learning their names all week so that they, they know that I actually do remember them and like them. So I get together with them. I'm bringing chips next time, ladies. So <laughs> let me pray though, uh, and then we'll get started in, in our study of uh, Job. Father, I'm thankful for your grace, and I'm thankful, Father, most of all, that you call your people to gather um, your, your grace is magnificent. You've called us out of darkness and into the light. And I pray, Father, that we would walk as children of light. Father, I know that there's lots of different people who are listening to my voice right now and lots of different places on the spiritual pilgrimage that maybe they're on. So I ask, Lord, that you would meet them where they are. Spirit, would you come and would you help me? Uh, let my words be both bold and appropriate for you. Would you be glorified and honored by our hearts and how we receive it in spirit? Would you do your work now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book Unspeakable, theologian and apologist Os Guinness uh, tells a story that is hard to hear. He writes, uh, Gerald Sitzer was a college professor living with his wife and four children in the northwestern part of the United States. Nothing could have been more normal than the day on which all six of them packed themselves and their grandmother into a minivan and set off for an Indian reservation in Idaho. The sisters were homeschooling their children, and since the lesson was on Native American culture, they decided to take a field trip and introduce their children to a powwow at a Native American reservation. With Gerald's mother visiting and eager to join the excursion, their excitement was palpable, and the prospects of a vivid teaching experience were strong. All went well. Dinner that evening was provi provided the opportunity to talk with the tribal leaders about their project and about the problems facing the tribe, such as alcoholism. And when dinner was over, the family strolled to the gymnasium where the powwow had started, and they sat next to another tribal leader who explained the dances the tribe was performing and the dress the dancers were wearing. After a long, full day, the moment came when the sister's children had had enough, and so they all returned to the minivan and set off for home, tired 
but happy. Ten minutes later, their world changed forever. A drunken local driving at 90 miles per hour with his pregnant wife next to him, also drunk, jumped his lane and smashed head-on into the minivan in the darkness. When Gerald, dazed, breathless, and in pain, was able to look back at the rest of his family, he was faced with terror on the faces of his surviving children and horror all around him. Helpless, the father watched his wife, his daughter, and his mother all die before his eyes. Three generations of his family in a terrible few minutes. Those moments are etched in Gerald Sitzer's mind forever. Carnage, pandemonium, and panic with lights flashing and orders barking and emergency vehicles circling, helicopters whirring overhead and his children crying and groaning. But already, there was the choking grip of anguish, the vice-like realization that darkness had descended and life would never be the same. His family, as he had known it, had been obliterated. 60 seconds had changed the world. So why do those things happen? Listen, I know we're supposed to be really spiritual about stories like that and quote all our favorite Bible verses about suffering and the sovereignty of God, but why again do they happen? Surely, if God loves us, and has the power to protect us from suffering, he would use that power, right? Like, even in this story, how many things would it have taken to go another way for this not to have happened? Maybe one of the kids just trips on the way to the minivan, and so they're, what, seven, eight seconds behind where they were, and the car that jumps the median misses. Maybe dad just fumbles with his keys. Maybe... A tree branch comes down and stops. There are a thousand, million different ways that this could have been stopped. Why would a loving God not stop it? And why, in the moments that are the darkest, he seems so silent? Like, like you just want to plead your case before him. The Lord, I followed you. I continue to sacrifice for you. And this is what I get? Like if you could just have a moment with him. If you could just sit down with God. And express to him all that's going on in your heart and mind and soul in these dark moments. If you could just have a moment with the Almighty, he would see that he's wrong. The character in the Bible who has that moment is Job. He actually gets his 
time with God Almighty. It's just him and God in a dialogue about God from Job's point of view doing the wrong thing to him. So I want to actually study what Job says after God speaks to him. Job's got a critique. God responds. What does Job say after that? Job 42, 1 to 6. Now, in order to get there, I have to go through the entire book of Job again. But we're going to do it with passage. I say again because a number of weeks ago I did it in like five minutes. This time it's going to take a little bit longer. But we're going to show you some passages of Scripture about the story of Job and what's happening in the midst of it. So two steps to this process. Number one, I'm going to tell you Job's story. And then second, there's three things we're going to learn about God and suffering from the book of Job. Here we go. Job's story. He's a wealthy guy. Faithful guy. He he is a model follower of God. In fact, he's such a model follower of God that when his kids have a party and there's the possibility that his children might have sinned, whether at the party or during the week or whatever, Job immediately goes out from those meetings and he sacrifices on their behalf. Like, he loves his kids, he loves God, model follower. The family regularly gets together uh, for dinners and functions they gather together and it's maybe it's not like our family where you know at thanksgiving you're like oh i hope uncle joe does not say anything and then of course he says something he gets drunk and then it's all over this is one of those thanksgivings you go to and you're like i love being with you i want to be more with you get together regularly the whole family so that's job the scene shifts in the early part of the book chapter one to a heavenly court god He points out Job. He says to Satan, who's been wandering through, don't don't ask, okay? He's been wandering through heaven, and God says, hey, do you see Job? He's a pretty righteous guy, right? Loves his family, gets together with them. They love each other. And Satan says, look, the only reason that this guy is righteous and follows you is because you coddle him. He's got no trouble In fact, if you let me, if you let me have a go at him, he'll he'll turn. And the Lord says, okay, it's a bet. But you can't touch his body. You you can't make him sick. Satan's like, yeah, piece of cake. So he takes off. And Job 1, 13, this is what happens. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting, At the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided us. They they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God, lightning, has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels, uh, killed your servants. I'm the only one 
who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another, number four now, arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, Job, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness. And it hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, collapsed and all. Your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Talk about 60 seconds changing your life. You've had these moments, haven't you? You've had these phone calls. I have. Still remember the day when my I woke up three, four in the morning because the, my phone was ringing, my cell phone was ringing, and I, had, I went across the room to pick it up. Who's calling me at this hour? It was my father on the other end of the phone, and he said, your mother has fallen. She hit her head, and she's in the hospital right now with her brain bleeding. What? She's 70. Just saw her, I just saw her the other day. Two weeks in and out of the hospital for me, she was supposed to be getting better, and then one day she went worse, she was brain dead, and she dies. It was there the night before she died. I had to hear my mother, I had to hear my mother choking on her own lung. Animals, servants, Kids all gone, they're all stolen, they're dead. 60 seconds change. What would you do there? What do you do when you get that phone call? What do, you, what do you do? What do you think immediately? Here's what Job thought. He stood up, he tore his robe in grief, and then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I'll be naked when I leave the Lord Gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Man, God was not kidding about this guy. <laughs> like, wow, wow. He worshiped in the, in the midst of it. Like, he's the guy that all those songs are about. Like, I will, I will praise you in the midst of the shadow and all the... Lyrics that we put together about it. He's the guy that is the model for that. So God wins, right? Okay, the scene shifts again to heaven. <laughs> and, and heavenly court, scene number two, God points to Job. Satan's wandering through again. And God says to, to Satan, hey, uh, didn't work out for you, did it? You know? You see Job still, still worshiping. Oh, come on, says Satan. His faithfulness is due completely to his health. Have you seen these men? Have you seen them like get a cold and they're on the couch for the next seven weeks? They complain about everything. Oh, it feels so bad. If you let me touch his body, just let me have at him physically, he will curse you to your face. See, you, you limited me the last time. Don't limit me. Let me have a go. The Lord says, okay, it's a bet. 
And Job chapter 2, verse 7. Oops. Here's what happened. Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils. You guys ever seen boils? Pimple popper. Have you seen this TV show? This pimple popper. What, what is wrong with us? We watch people pop pimples on TV. This is ridiculous, but that's boils are like really big pimples. Like Job would have been on her show. Okay? He struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. And look at this. He, he scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery. You can see him lying there, sitting there on this ashes, just scraping his skin. Pus everywhere. Sorry, that's too much, right? <laughs> you talked about his dead kids, but when you mentioned pus, I was out. All right. His wife said to him, are you, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God. And die is what it's supposed to say. Curse God and die. Now, before we're too rough on her, let's, let's just be honest. Uh, she is honest, right? She is at least honest. You can imagine her seeing all this happening. Her kids have died. She sees what's happening to Job. And at some point, you just crack. And she says, this is crazy, you are the most righteous man we know, and this is what God does in response? Are you kidding? You can see her with her little rolling bag walking out the door and saying, I don't know what to do with you anymore. Just curse God and die. He left you. You leave him. I'm out. Many people have agreed with her and acted similarly. You know those people. Some of you in the room are those people. But it's just been too much. It's just been too much. And, and you, you're like, I'm out, I'm done. If you are gonna treat me like this, God, then I'm gonna treat you in the same manner. How dare you do this? This guy named Charles Templeton, he was a contemporary of Billy Graham, and you know, he was an evangelist, and he actually ended up leaving the faith, and one of the reasons that he left the faith ultimately was because he said he saw on the front of Life magazine, which sold magazine years and years ago that had pictures on the front. They were covering world news. And in the front of this magazine was a woman holding her dead child in the midst of a war-torn scene. And he, the child had died of hunger in the midst of this scene. And, and he could not get over the idea that God, all they needed was rain. Just needed Rain. So I'm out, he said. I'm out. And yet, Job 2, 10, Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only the good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? This word actually in Hebrew is evil. So in all this, Job said, nothing wrong. Amazingly faithful guy. Everything is, he's faithful, faithful. God is right about him. Until his friends show up, okay? His friends show up. Um, I, I, they're, they're trying to be faithful friends. You know, they show up at the guy's bedside because everything's going wrong. They make the big trek. 
And they show up there and they begin by sitting on the floor with him, with their suffering brother. Three of Job's friends heard the tragedy he had suffered. They, they got together, they traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. This is a big deal in those days, right? To travel that kind of distance. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. So, so wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job for they saw that this suffering was too great for words. You guys do realize that there's a difference between theoretical wise and actual wise. When I say wise, when we have difficult moments in our lives, we often just instinctively cry out to God, why? There is a difference between why when you're sitting in a seminary classroom having a conversation about theodicy, which is the interplay between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. That is an interesting question, and we can talk about it from a biblical point of view and talk about nuances and passages of Scripture and all sorts of stuff, getting little arguments about it. We can do that. There's a value in theoretical answers to why. But then there's the actual why question when Gerald Sitzer loses his family and says, why? Or when you struggle with your finances and you say, why? Or my mother dies and I say, why? If you take the theoretical language and you apply it to this actual moment, shut up. It's, it's, listen, I know you can answer the why question, but as Job says in Job chapter 6, he says, some words are for the wind. You don't need to correct their theology when they're in the midst of heartache at the very front part. There will be a time for the theology, for the th theoretical why to be answered. There will be a time. But the first thing that we do as brothers and sisters of Christ with those who are suffering around us is shut up. We sit we identify, we rip our clothes, and we cry our tears. Oh, dear brother, oh, dear sister. I don't know what to say. One of my best friends in the world is uh, the new pastor here uh, of leadership development. His name is Kyle Meeker. Uh, I was, my mother died, and one year later, I had to go and visit my entire family in Milwaukee, actually. I was at a, at a conference in Milwaukee, and uh, I didn't want to go. We were sharing a room together because we were at a conference and uh, I, 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 I just crumbled on the floor because my mother wasn't going to be at this meeting of my family in Milwaukee. She was the hub around which my whole family spun. And I, I just, I, <laughs> if you ever had moments where your legs just give way, I just gave way. I just crumpled on the floor in the corner of this hotel room. Kyle, on the other side of the room, he saw me and he walked over stood over me, sat right down next to me, and looked at the floor with me. For 10 minutes, just sitting there. And I love him. 
This was their best moment. Yeah, we can all agree on that. This was the best moment that these dudes have in the whole story. Yeah, okay. Uh, then they open their mouths. And um, here's their critique of him. Look, the way the world works is that people who do good things are rewarded for their good, and those who do bad things are rewarded, punished for their bad. So Job, if this bad thing is happening to you, you must have done something wrong. So that, is it because you're so pious, meaning so righteous, that he accuses you and brings judgment against you? No, it's because of your wickedness, Job. There's no limit to your sins. For example, you must have lent money to your friend and demanded clothing as a security. Yeah, you stripped him to the bone. Uh, you must have refused water for the thirsty and food for the hungry. You probably think the land belongs to the powerful and only the privileged have a right to it. You, you must have sent widows away empty-handed and crushed the hopes of orphans. That, that's why. You're surrounded by traps and tremble from sudden fear. See, that's why you cannot see darkness. And waves of water cover you. It's your fault, man. God, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. You've done wrong, Job. <laughs> and Job's response is, I don't like you people. If only someone, this is Job now, if only someone would listen to me. Look, I will sign my name to my defense. Give me a contract and I will sign it. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser, God in this case, write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly. I, I would wear it like a crown. For I would tell him exactly what I have done. Meaning everything right. I would come before him <laughs> like a prince. I'd come before him and he'd recognize that I'm as righteous as they come and I don't deserve any of this. Just give me my moment with God. Careful what you ask for, by the way. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty? Yeah. All right, this is old. Some of you are like, what? Okay, in the 90s, there was this movie named Bruce Almighty about a guy who became God for a little while to kind of prove to him that God's job's really hard. It's not great theology, okay? But look. There is a scene where everything's been going wrong for Bruce. He lost his job, lost his girlfriend. He gets in a car accident. He's on the side of the road on a, on a bridge, okay? And he's so angry. He's so angry at God. So here's what he says. And I'm going to try to do this. My best Jim Carrey person. Here we go. He says, fine. The gloves are off, pal. Come on, let me see a little wrath. Smite me, oh great smiter! That's good, eh? Okay. You're the one who should be fired. The only one around here not doing his job is you. Answer me! Answer me! That's Job. That's Job. Not as crass, right? But, but, but let the Almighty, let him answer me. Um... So God answers. Then the Lord answered Job, oh, from the, what was it that knocked down that house with his kids in it again? Yeah. 
So Job answers from, God answers Job from a whirlwind. <clears throat> Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? So, so brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you. You have a question for me, but I have some questions for you, and, and you must, you must answer them. Number one, uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. If you're so wise to question my plan, where were we when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, Job? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? See, I, I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. You walk on the beach, Job, and you see that I'm the one who said this far and no farther will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. He asks and he asks and he asks questions like this over and over again. And eventually, he starts using sarcasm. God bless God. He starts using sarcasm. Um, where does light come from, Job, and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? That's God's way of saying, hey, man, I'm in control of every day. Are you, Job? Do you know how to get there? But, but of course you know, here it is. Oh, but of course you know all this. For you were born before it was all created, and you are very experienced. There's a point at which Job starts tapping out, you know, like wrestling. You're like, I'm done. I'm done. Just tap out. I get it. Stop. And the Lord's like, no, no, no. You wanted to have a conversation with me. So let's have a conversation. I got a few more questions for you. He keeps after it. The last set of questions, God, he emphasizes his power over what's called the Leviathan. In the ancient world, there was a belief that the sea was chaos and they're largely because you couldn't go under the sea and see what was there, guys. I mean, it's not like scuba days then. And so every once in a while, well, there'd be some big animal that would jump out of the sea, and people, fishermen, were like, whoa, what was that? Right? In this part of the world, there's some crocodiles and stuff. People were like, whoa, what is that thing? It's got his eyes just above the, like, what is that thing? And so they came, there was a name for it called the Leviathan. He was kind of the symbol for chaos. They used to put on their, on their um, money a picture of a seven-headed snake. That was kind of what people thought. The Leviathan was the most untamable creature in the world. Nobody, nobody could, nobody could, could, could stop him. Like, think about your worst horror movie. That guy, that horror guy. That nobody could stop. That's the Leviathan. And so God starts talking about the Leviathan to Job. And in Job 41, he says... Can you catch Leviathan with a hook or put a noose around his jaw? Dude, I fish for it, Job. Can you tie it up with a rope through the nose or pierce his jaw with a spike? Will it beg you for mercy or implore you for pity? Will it agree to work for you to be your slave for, what, for life? Oh, can you make it, it's my favorite scene in the whole book of Job, the whole favorite image. Can you make it a pet like a bird or give it to your little girls to play with? 
See, I go down and the untamable Leviathan, I catch it, I bring it out, I enslave it, and I hand it to my daughter so she can walk along with the... That's what I do to the untamable Leviathan, Job. It's the power that I have. That's the control and authority that I have. Do you have it, Job? Over 70 questions. And then, I'm convinced, silence. And then Job 42, 1 to 6. That was all introduction. Don't worry. I got three things I think we can learn regarding God and our suffering. They're not my things. They're actually Job's things in Job 42, 1 to 6. Here's the first one. I think God is sovereign over our suffering. Here's what it says in Job 42, 1 to 2. After the silence, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything. And no one can stop you. So what have I learned from this, says Job? I've learned that, Lord, there is not a power in heaven and on earth, material or immaterial, that can stand over against your plan and stop you from doing what it is that you want to do. See, the temptation you and I have when faced with pain like this is we want to get God off the hook for it. When my mom dies or you face financial suffering, or I want to get God off the hook for that. So here's the way I tend to do it. I end up saying, well, look, God must not be able to control these things. There's just some things that God's not sovereign over. It's a guy named uh, Rabbi Kushner, Harold Kushner, back in the early 80s. He wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in it, he, he said this. He said, some things are too difficult for even God. See, I can worship a God who hates suffering, but who can't eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die for whatever whatever exalted reason. See, the problem of suffering is basically solved if we see that God is just not strong enough to stop it. Some Some of the more recent takes on this is that God, look, the way that God works with his creation is that he's like a jockey on the back of a really fast horse, you know? And the, the, the bell goes off and he starts riding and that horse sometimes, the horse, by the way, is his world or you and I, sometimes wanna go to, the, go to the right and he's like, oh, he's gotta react. And then he comes back here and the horse wants to go left and then he reacts and the horse slows down and so he kicks it to speed it up. He's in a magnificent jockey, always responding to the world's actions, to people's actions that he doesn't know about before they happen. God, in other words, is kind of like a doctor who might see your leg one day and go, huh, never seen that before. We're going to have to interact or respond to it. This is a very popular theological opinion, but here's my question. If you had your little camera and your microphone and you could go right up to Job and do the man on the street interview after he had been asked all the questions by God and you shove the, the microphone in his face and say, Do you think this is true? Do you think that God is like a jockey responding to the actions of everybody else, but he doesn't really know what's going on before it happens? What do you think Job would say? Shut up. What are you talking about? Like, what are you talking about? He just asked me, I don't want any more questions. Stop making him ask questions. Like, the, the response you ultimately would get is that no, there's no way that that's the case. God can do anything, and nobody can stop him. Nothing, including our suffering, is outside his providence. Nothing is. He will never say, 
Oh, I never saw that coming. This guy named R. Laird Harris, he's a, he's a theologian. He said, uh, we're not alone in the fell clutch of circumstance, and we, and we don't suffer under the bludgeoning of chance. We live under the protecting shadow of a sovereign God, but that leaves us with a really big question then. Okay, so if God has the power to do it, we go back to all the questions I asked at the very beginning. Why doesn't he? Like, if he can stop it, and he, you know, he can do anything and no one can stop him, why doesn't he stop the suffering? Well, here's the second thing that you learn. You asked, who is this? that questions my wisdom with such ignorance. Look, look it's, it's, it's me. And, and I was talking about things, I, look, I knew nothing about. They are things that are far too wonderful. Far too wonderful for me. See, God, the second thing we learn is that God is, he has reasons. He has reasons for for our suffering, there's a story in, in the late 90s. Actually, the reason I'm telling you the late 90s story in New York City is because it had a huge, huge impact in some of the more secular writers of this city. What happened was this Ecuadorian family, a mother and four children, had left Ecuador, made their way all the way up to New York, and had finally kind of made a way for their, themselves. Through all the difficulties, they made a way for themselves. They were living in a little apartment, and one night they just decided to go and leave the apartment. Apparently there was some threat perhaps on their lives. They left the apartment, they went down to the railroad tracks, and as they were walking along the railroad tracks, a train slaughtered them. In fact, three of them were on one side and one of them was on the other, the youngest on the other. And when the youngest saw the train coming, the youngest jumped across, tried to jump across the tracks and his mom, in act of heroism, jumped into the middle of the tracks to try to save the child. And so did the other two children in tow. And, and the train just, body parts everywhere. So this is big news in the in newspapers, of course. And there were some columnists in New York at the time who were saying, look, where is God in this? These people who were religious people, Right, Catholic, they, they came along all the way from where they were in Ecuador. They make it all the way up here. Apparently, they were known for talking about how God had delivered them. And then on one night, after all of that, after they had finally arrived, they go down a trail road track and they're run over by a train. There is no way, said some of the columnists, there is no way that God is in control of the world if there even is a God. There is no reason for this. And yet, and yet, I have a question. Is it true that just because you and I can't see a reason, there isn't one? Um, so you take your child to the doctor. I know this is gonna get really dicey now. I'm gonna talk about immunization. Oh, oh, so I'm not, listen, I'm not advocate. Just, just an illustration. Don't email me, or you can email Roger. <clears throat> but you know the idea behind an immunization, though? The idea behind it is, look, you take your child to the doctor, and they're all happy. You know, your kids are all bouncing on your knee. Oh, I love the doctor, right? And he gives them a little candy sometimes, and they sit down on the knee of the doctor, and they're, what, two years old or whatever? And the doctor, it 
he pulls out a needle, and, and he, he stabs your child. Because that's what those people are like. They stab people. So he, st- he stabs your child. And if you've ever sat in that room when the doctor stabs the child, come on, is this is a joke about the stabbing. Okay, he inoculates the child. Anyway, so there's, he stabs the child, and then your child looks in your eyes and says, you, you've betrayed me. Judas, you know, they're like <laughs> so mad at you. And they're like, ah! and they start screaming. You try to hold them, and they're like, no, I don't want anybody to hold me. I'm never going to let you hold me again because you're terrible. You're a terrible person. And yet what you want to say to them in that moment is, honey, let me just explain to you the, you know, immunology is a general concept and that this has been tested and all these things, you know, but the two-year-old's not going to have a clue what you're talking about, right? So you don't say it because you know it's just going to be empty words on the two-year-old. Instead, you just say, just trust me, you know, it's okay, just trust me. Because in your mind, there is some knowledge that you have that's outside of their realm of knowledge that makes sense of this. Is it possible, brothers and sisters in Christ and all who are looking on, is it possible that God Almighty, the wisest of the wise, might have something in his framework of knowledge outside of ours that makes sense of our experience in the moment? Isn't it possible that the God who you think is big enough to stop the suffering might also be big enough to have reasons for it that you know nothing about. Okay, fine, we say. If God is big enough to stop suffering, he's big enough to have reasons for it we know nothing about, okay. God has his reasons. But see, I still have the pain. So how do I live here? How do I live in the middle of of, of the pain, which is where this ends? Job 42, 4 to 6, he says, he said, Job says, you you said, listen, and I'll speak, and I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Like 70 questions later, I'm just standing here. Look, I'd, I'd I'd only heard about you before. But see, now, now I've seen you. With my own eyes. See, I take, I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my re- repentance. I'd only heard about you, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. Guys, do you realize that, that at the end of this story, Job never gets an actual explanation for what happened in his life? He doesn't get any explanation. God could come to him and say to him, okay, Job you got to get this. I'm in heaven, and Satan's walking by, and I say, Job, and he says, oh, you'll never, you know, and let's take a bet, and then it doesn't work, and then he comes back, and so he could explain all of this to Job, and Job would go, oh, okay, that makes sense now. He does not get an explanation. He, Job dies, as far as we know, without any explanation for why he suffered, but he does get an answer. And the answer is God. When my children were young, I used to take them in the pool, right? And, and you want to teach them how to swim. One of the first things you do when you teach children want to swim is you kind of put them on their back so they float, you know? 
But that's really weird for anybody who's not been in the pool before. It's just like really scary. And so a kid goes down, you flip them on their back, and they're like, woo and there's nothing to hold on to. And so what you say to your child in that moment, right, because you want to teach them to swim. It's a good thing to teach them to swim. It's going to save them in the future. And so all this pain and suffering you're putting them through in this present moment is actually achieving a goal that will help them in the long term. It has a purpose to it. And so they're, they're flailing like this, and all of a sudden you look in their eyes and say, hey, 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 hey. Relax, I'm right here, I'm right here, I'm right here. Just look me in the eyes. Just look me in the eyes. And they look you in the eyes and then they go, ugh. The circumstances didn't change. They're still in the pool on their back. The water's still the water. There's still a possibility they can drown. What's changed? Well, I had heard about you, but now I see you. Maybe 60 seconds have changed your world. And you live with aching questions. But listen to me, your questions are not as big as the one to whom you ask them. The solution to your problem is not all the knowledge of why he did what he did. Your solution to your problem is a surrender into his loving arms is laying back in that pool and saying, I'd, I'd heard about you, but now I see you. And as long as I can see you, as long as I can know you, it's enough for me. So look in his eyes and feel his strength and remember his wisdom and trust your God. Let me pray, Father. You know, whenever we talk about these sorts of issues, uh, you know, you're talking into the lives of so many different people, of so many different places. Some people are, are asking that theoretical question and they're pushing back against God because they don't agree with it. But then some of them are just facing actual pain and heartache. So I pray, Spirit, that you would use whatever feeble words that I've spoken here and that you would take them and that you would apply them to the hearts of those who know you and those who don't to convict them. But ultimately, Father, that through that conviction, they would relax. They'd let go of their bitterness and heartache and cast themselves into your loving arms and to feel your warm embrace. Be with us, Father as we face the challenges of the years to come and the pain, Father, that will come. You are good all the time. We pray it in your name.